Well, good morning, Triumphant Grace. So before I actually begin, I'm going to refer you to a couple sermon series I did. One is called The Image of God. There's two parts to it. And I'm going to reference that a little bit in my message today. So if you haven't heard those messages, I encourage you to go back and hear them, as well as The Ultimate Destiny, Part 1 and 2. They're all in TGM's library. You just might have to scroll down quite a ways to get to them. It would be a real blessing for you. There's a lot of stuff I'm just going to kind of skim over today. But those messages go into those topics much deeper. And it might help tie things in together with what I'm going to say today. And so today I'm speaking on Your Ultimate Destiny Part 3. And I'm here to tell you, you are not going to learn your ultimate destiny today. There's more yet to come. So you have to just keep coming back till we get to the end. So in this series of messages, we have been mainly talking about eschatology, which is a study of end times. Of course, this topic has been and still is enormously popular in the United States and really in the whole of Western Christianity for the past 50 years. It really took off in popularity with the publishing of the book, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey back in 1970. His view of the end times is called premillennial dispensation. And its proponents, and there are many, they believe that most of the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation are yet to be fulfilled. In other words, they believe they are still off in the future, in our immediate future. They believe the next major prophetic event to be fulfilled will be the rapture of the church. This is where all true believers will be whisked away up into the heavens to meet Jesus and will then accompany him to heaven for the next seven years while everyone else on the earth, those who remain, will go through the great tribulation during which we would also see the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, the renewal of animal sacrifices, and of course the rise of the notorious Antichrist. We would see his great peace treaty with Israel, which he will then break after three and a half years. The Antichrist's power and authority will continue to grow until he becomes the world ruler. And he will also set himself up as God in the newly rebuilt temple and demand to be worshipped. His evil reign of terror, murder, and persecution will last another three and a half years and will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon, at which point Jesus will return to defeat the Antichrist, his prophet, and the devil, and cast them all into the lake of fire. Then we'll begin the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth, which is, of course, called the millennium. And that, my friends, is the briefest of an overview of premillennial dispensation. But I believe it accurately reflects the core beliefs of many within Christianity today. And is it any wonder? For it has been taught as fact in Christian universities and Bible colleges for decades and so it is what the men and women that come out of those educational institutes 
as pastors now, teach or at least promote within their churches. And there are very few, if any, popular television evangelists, teachers, and preachers who do not hold to this view. We've probably all seen the Left Behind movies starring Kirk Cameron, or perhaps the newer one with Nicolas Cage. Perhaps you've read one or more of the highly popular Left Behind book series by Timothy LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, which have sold around 80 million copies worldwide. I bring all this up into your attention at the beginning of this message, because for me at least, it is the elephant in the room. And it is why, in part, I have been teaching on the end times. Now, there was a time when I believed in the imminent rapture, the Antichrist, future Great Tribulation, the coming battle of Armageddon, all of it. And I simply accepted it as fact for many years. But as I'm sure you know by now, I no longer accept it as fact because indeed it is not fact. I no longer believe it because it is simply a wrong biblical interpretation of Scripture. It is bad biblical exegesis. More importantly, it leads us away from what our present vocation should be in this life now. And it also leads us away from what our ultimate destiny is. And let me further say that our present vocation and our ultimate destiny do go hand in hand. The one naturally leads into the other. And we will talk about this more as we continue in this message and in this series. For that is the purpose of all these messages on the end times. It is to point us to our vocation, our God-given purpose in life, as well as to keep our eyes focused upon our ultimate destiny. Neither of which has anything to do with sitting around waiting to be raptured out of the earth. An earth that will then be completely destroyed. In fact, your present vocation and your ultimate destiny is the exact opposite of that teaching. Your present purpose, your vocation, is not to escape from this world, as so many today are waiting and hoping for, but it is to be God's image in this world. It is what we were created for, to bear and to bring the life, the love, the light of God to this world that is in such great need of it. Look around you out there into this world. There's darkness everywhere. As there was back in Paul's time when he wrote this to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. Here Paul was writing to Timothy about troubles that would affect the church in the first century. But it's just as true today, isn't it? But God's response is not for us to run away and escape from it, as nice and easy as that might seem, but rather to be present and visible within the world. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 17, verse 15. He's praying to the Father before His passion begins, and He's speaking of His followers, the believers. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now why would Jesus ask the Father for this? Because Jesus knew the world needs us in the world to fight against the darkness. By simply being who we were created to be, His image in this present world. In John chapter 1, verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. Now I know this is specifically speaking and referring to Jesus, but remember, Jesus is in us. We are in Him. That's our reality. His light is within us, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Light's very purpose is to dispel the darkness. If you are in the world, being the image of God, the light of Jesus within you will dispel the darkness. Now we need to understand that Satan won't like it. But there's nothing he can do about it but try to attack us personally. And that's why Jesus also prayed for us to be kept from the evil one. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What was Paul telling us? Don't hide or try to escape from the world. Right? Walk. Live as the light that you truly are. Here's two more scriptures to emphasize this point even more before we move on. They are two of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and they are from the mouth of Jesus himself to his followers, to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So again, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the image of God, that is who we are and who we are to be in and for this world. And now that we are more fully aware of our present vocation, we are also that much closer to knowing our ultimate destiny, since they are closely tied together. Keeping all this in mind, let's continue now with our discussion of eschatology. In the last message, I really focused on the book of Revelation. If you didn't hear it, 
Or even if you did, as I said, please go back and listen to it again. And if I had to reduce that last message to one main point, that point would be context, context, context. And that's not only for the book of Revelation, but for the entire Bible itself. Scripture needs to be first interpreted from within the book it is found. In other words, we need to understand the context of to whom was it written, when was it written, and for what purpose was it written. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons for us to be learned from it, or that there aren't any future implications involved, but that is where we always need to begin our study and interpretation of Scripture. And only then can we move forward using wisdom and maybe even a little common sense. And you know, there's nothing wrong with using common sense. After all, God did give us a brain and a mind in order to think things through. Amen? When it comes to Scripture, common sense just needs to be used in full conjunction with sound biblical interpretation. Another important context that we must keep in mind is the type of the book itself. In the case of the book of Revelation, it is both a symbolic and apocalyptic book. Revelation is first and foremost a book of signs and symbols. We read that in its very first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. Things which must shortly take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The Greek word used here for signify is semino. And it means to give a sign or expressing by signs. And here's a definition of symbolic. A symbol is a mark, sign, or word that indicates or signifies or is understood as representing an idea, object, or relationship. In other words, a symbol isn't the reality itself, but it points us to reality, to the real reality. Now, no one, not even premillennial dispensationalists, would expect to see a literal seven-headed beast arising out of the sea. Nor do we expect to see a fiery red dragon or a great whore with the words Babylon the Great written across her forehead. These are symbols, signs that point us to the reality that is really taking place. No one would dispute that. And that's just making good use of our common sense. Why then do we so easily want to jump to the conclusion that some signs and symbols are to be interpreted as completely literal? Like a literal mark of the beast that will be implanted into non-believers. Speaking of that, have anybody else seen the article or it's about how now some people are calling the vaccine for COVID the mark of the beast? Wow. I'm not speaking for or against the vaccine. I'm just saying that's crazy. Nor do we expect to see two witnesses who will 
preach in Jerusalem and breathe out literal fire to kill those who seek them harm. Nor do we expect or should not expect to see Jesus returning to the earth on a white horse wearing a robe drenched in blood. For me, this is not sound biblical exegesis or good common sense. And the book of Revelation is also an apocalyptic book. Did you know that Revelation's title in the Greek language in which it was written is really the Apocalypse of John? The Greek word from which apocalypse is translated is apocalypsis. And it literally means an uncovering, a revealing. And so there's where we get the name, the book of Revelation. And according to Wikipedia, an apocalypse is a disclosure or revelation of great knowledge and usually discloses something very important that was hidden. One dictionary definition, an event evolving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. So I believe a good biblical definition of apocalypse is a revealing of a catastrophic and destructive event. One example of apocalyptic language found in Revelation, and there are many, but let's look specifically at Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. But all the seal and trumpet and bold judgments are in this apocalyptic language, full of symbols pointing to a catastrophic event, which as we learned last time, is the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs, when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of place. Now perhaps these verses sound a little familiar to you, and they should, for Jesus used words much like this in his Olivet Prophecy, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here again, Jesus is using apocalyptic language to describe the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples did not expect the sun to go black, or the moon to turn to blood, or stars to fall out of heaven. They understood Jesus' words to be symbolic and apocalyptic because they were very much aware of this type of language because it came right out of their very own sacred scriptures. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. 
The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Isaiah wrote that the day of the Lord was coming. And when it did, it would result in this description. And this was a description of a localized judgment which came upon the nation of Babylon by the Medes in 539 B.C., when Babylon was completely destroyed. The prophet Ezekiel wrote this way about the destruction of Egypt in Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 6 through 8. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's specifically speaking to Pharaoh. And then he says in verse 6, I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains. The riverbeds will be full of you. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. This prophecy, written in apocalyptic language, was fulfilled when Babylon completely defeated Egypt in 605 B.C. And again, Isaiah writes in the same manner about the destruction of the nation of Edom. We see this in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 4 and 5. He says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. Obviously, none of these things described in such poetic fashion literally happened but they did point to a catastrophic event. All referred to the destruction of a nation. And it was a passing of great power. The world, as it was known, was dramatically changed by these events, as it would also be with the destruction of Jerusalem. The disciples of Jesus knew to what this apocalyptic language was referring, as did the Jews to whom John was writing in Revelation. It was about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus clearly taught this as we read in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, verses 15 and 18. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Jesus is here speaking of the temple specifically and Jerusalem as a whole. 
For again, it was all completely destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD. He was also speaking specifically to those living in Judea and Jerusalem. And Jesus' warnings and his instructions were taught and obeyed by those first century believers. For in Jerusalem's destruction, history tells us that over one million Jews lost their lives. But there were no Christians that died in the ransacking of Jerusalem. The disciples of Jesus and the first century Christians knew and believed what Jesus was talking about. They also knew and believed what John was writing about in the book of Revelation, which was once again the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. Please forgive my repetitiveness, but this point is so important in establishing a proper end-time viewpoint. So we've been talking about the importance of context as we study and interpret scriptures and the book of Revelation in particular. Last time we also talked about the importance of historical context. The fact that Revelation was written to first century Christians in general and specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was written to encourage them in the face of great persecution and to give them hope for their situation and their future. Now we can surely glean much from this letter, such as God's faithfulness to us, His love for us, His victory over all evil, and many other things as well. But we do need to realize it was not written to us or about events that would happen 2,000 years after this letter was written. And this leads us to another context that is vital for us to keep in mind. It is what we referred to as the time constraint that we do have, both in the book of Revelation and in Jesus' Olivet Prophecy. In Revelation, we see this context expressed clearly in its very first verses. Revelation chapter 1, 1 and 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I wonder why it is sometimes so hard for us to just believe what the Word of God says in such a straightforward way. Wouldn't that be good use of common sense? And wouldn't it be good common sense and even wise to just believe Jesus when he tells his disciples at the very end of the Olivet Prophecy this? Matthew 24, starting in verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Let me repeat. Jesus said, this generation would by no way pass away until all the things that he had just spoken 
came to pass. And brothers and sisters, that included the Great Tribulation. It included the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, which was in the temple of Jerusalem. It included the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and the stars falling from heaven. Again, Jesus said this generation. He was speaking to his contemporaries, to the Jews of 30 AD. And 40 years later, a generation in years, the temple and Jerusalem were totally destroyed. This was the end of the age. Or you could say the end of the Mosaic dispensation. The beginning of the age to come actually began 40 years earlier when Jesus was resurrected from the dead with a forevermore alive, transformed physical body. It was a time of Matthew 28, 18, when all authority on heaven and earth was now His. It was a time as in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, where He now has the keys of Hades and death. Praise God, the Satan has been defeated. He no longer has that authority. Death itself no longer has the last word. Jesus does. We are living in the age to come. Of course, it is not yet fully consummated, is it? And it won't be until Jesus returns, but we are in it. The way the world was, was changed dramatically with Jesus' resurrection. And the old covenant, the Jewish age, was finally and completely ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Now in the last message, using all this context that I've just represented to you, we explored the book of Revelation. And we made a number of key points. We talked about the fact that Jesus was speaking very specifically to seven first century churches of Asia Minor. You will find that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. As an example of that, we looked at the church in Laodicea and learned that when Jesus called them lukewarm, it was also a specific reference to their own water supply. So again, Jesus is speaking to a specific church about their specific problem. We also learned last time that the Babylon mentioned so prominently in Revelation was actually referring to first century Jerusalem. We learned that the beast of the sea in Revelation chapter 13 and the scarlet beast of Revelation 17 were one and the same, for they each had seven heads and ten horns and that they were actually referring to the Roman Empire of the time, and specifically to its emperor, Nero Caesar. We also talked about the mark of the beast and its number of 666, which we showed referred once more to Nero. And again, and I can't say this enough, that in the book of Revelation, John was writing to first century Christians encouraging them in the face of massive persecutions from the Jewish authorities and zealots, and that the vast majority of that persecution would stop when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. In essence, then, 
The book of Revelation is all about giving hope and encouragement to those first century Christians. And it is a highly symbolic description of their present circumstances, as well as the events leading up to Jerusalem's destruction, which is what the Bible refers to as the end times. It was the final end of the old age and the continuing breaking in of the age to come, the kingdom of God. Now, before we finish our very brief study of the book of Revelation, there are, of course, a few more points that we need to look at. First, some of you might want to know why there are a number of Bibles that say Revelation was written around 95 AD. And if that is the case, then it probably wouldn't be about Jerusalem's destruction. And that would be a very good point. The truth is, we have no solid, direct evidence as to when the book of Revelation was actually written. None of the books of the New Testament have a date or a year stamped on them by their author. All we can do is use all the evidence that we can find to make our best educated determination, or guess if you like, as to when Revelation was written. There are two types of evidence that are at our disposal. What is called internal evidence and external evidence. The internal evidence is what I've been presenting to you in these last two teachings. For me personally, all these points point to the conclusion that Revelation was written about and before the fall of Jerusalem, probably around 64 AD. This is what is referred to as the early date for Revelation's writing. The late date, for its authorship, is said to be in the mid to late 90s and sometimes even into the second century. What internal evidence the late day proponents present to support their view, I am not aware of. Therefore, I am not in a position to dispute them, nor do I wish to. I am fully satisfied and confident in the position I hold for the reasons already given in these messages. Now, the same holds true for external evidence on Revelation's date of writing. There simply is no direct evidence. All external evidence that is presented by either side is subjective and therefore rapidly dismissed by its opponents. Let me end this short discussion by saying that while the late date has been taught more often and has been more dominant down through the years, the earlier date for the writing of Revelation has been gaining in popularity. If you wish to research the early date argument more thoroughly, I suggest reading the book Redating the New Testament by John A.T. Robinson and or Before Jerusalem Fell by Kenneth Gentry. And please remember that if a Bible does have a date of 95 A.D. or later for the writing of Revelation, that is only the viewpoint of the person or company that is editing that particular version of the Bible. And that viewpoint is probably based upon what they were taught or have chosen to believe, but definitely not on any hard facts. Now let's return to the book of Revelation for some closing points to help us wrap this study up, perhaps tie it together a little bit more. 
We haven't spent much time talking about the seal, trumpet, bowl, judgments, other than the two verses we read earlier. But it's important to understand that these are not chronological judgments. In other words, the seven seal judgments are not followed by seven different trumpet judgments, after which there would be seven more bowl judgments. These judgments are just different angles of looking at the same catastrophic event, which by now we understand to be the destruction of Jerusalem. And they are conveyed to us in apocalyptic language, end-of-the-age language, language which describes an actual historical event but fills it with the theological significance of the end of the Jewish age. These judgments, as is the book of Revelation as a whole, are also filled with highly symbolic language. And remember, symbols are there to point us to the reality. They are not the reality in themselves. The highly symbolic language of Revelation could also be defined as hyperbole. The definition of hyperbole is exaggerated statements or claims not to be taken literally. Jesus himself used hyperbole in some of his teachings. The one that comes to my mind immediately is in this passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you did not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, we know Jesus is not advising or encouraging us to pluck out our eyes or cut off our limbs. But he is teaching of the importance and of the great care we should take not to offend others especially in this specific case, children. We are not to be looking down on them, judging ourselves to be better or more important than they. Humility is indeed crucial for life in the kingdom of God. Treating all others with respect and dignity. Loving them, no matter what their status in society is. All of that is the point Jesus was trying to make sure that his disciples understood. So he used hyperbole, a great exaggeration that drove home his teaching in a way his disciples would remember. Revelation is written in the same style for much the same reason. Do we now see why it would be foolish for us to try to interpret its symbolic language as literal? And so, in this light, let us look at one final hyperbole and symbol in the book of Revelation. In fact, it is the final one that John gives to us, and it holds for us great hope, encouragement, and meaning. I am referring to the New Jerusalem. We are first introduced to it here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city 
New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then we are given a detailed description of it in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. All in all, what a truly amazing picture that John has painted for us. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. After this verse, we are given a description of the New Jerusalem's dimensions, which come out to be 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles in height. Its walls are said to be over 200 feet thick. I hope you see here the hyperbole. Now let's see more description of this new Jerusalem, starting in verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. What a beautiful picture. Beautiful words to describe a place that we would all long for. A place we would all love to see and live. Yes? But New Jerusalem is not a literal city descending down out of the sky. But it is a symbolic vision of how John sees the kingdom of God in all its full glory. Let me ask you a question. How would you describe something that's indescribable? This is how the Holy Spirit showed it to John in a way that we could at least get a small glimpse of what our ultimate future has in store for us. Remember, part of the purpose of Revelation is for encouragement for those first century Christians. But here we see, and we know within ourselves, that it is for us as well. We are given here a small peek into our ultimate destiny. We see here the full consummation of the kingdom of God. But notice this. That new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, comes and is located, this ultimate consummation of the kingdom, it is here on the earth. Your ultimate destiny is. And for this moment, 
In this message, I'm going to put it in the negative. Your ultimate destiny is not going to heaven when you die. Now remember, this is about your ultimate destiny and destination, and not about what we might call your intermediate destiny or destination. But more on that next time. Back to New Jerusalem and the time when the fullness of the kingdom of God arrives here on the earth. The Apostle Paul tries to describe this time as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amazing. In verses 19 through 21, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because, notice this, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And in verse 22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The time is coming when God will be all in all. This, our ultimate future, is coming. Do we truly see it and take hold of it? This is what Paul is encouraging us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. What we are going through today, what we are pressing in to the kingdom, moving forward, it is working for us a more, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In Revelation, with New Jerusalem, John is giving us a more detailed glimpse into that future. Let's return to that vision of our ultimate destination. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. When I read that, I think of what Paul just told us. The new creation is being birthed out of the old creation. Somehow God is going to take what we're doing now and make it all new. He's not destroying the heaven and the earth. It's passing away and the new creation is bursting forth. And as a side note, when it says the sea, 
there was no more sea. Again, it's symbolic, right? In the Bible, sea is often used as a reference, as a symbol of chaos and evil. We saw that the seven-headed beast arose out of the sea. What God is telling us, no more sea, in that time there's going to be no more chaos, no more evil. Praise God. Revelation 21.2 Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So God is the one who prepares it, and he's preparing it as a bride. Next verse. The time. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The time has arrived when God is fully, completely present with us in a way we can't even begin to imagine. Next verse. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for those former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, the time is coming when God himself will wipe away tears. The time when there will be no more death, nor sorrow, or crying. Except, I imagine, for all those tears of joy. Can you imagine such a time, such a place, such a God? If you can, you still only have the smallest glimpse. But hold on to that glimpse, meditate on it, and may the Holy Spirit enlighten you all the more of our glorious future. As for me personally, as I was preparing this section... What came to me was the song by Mercy Me, I Can Only Imagine. Here are its lyrics. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. What my eyes would see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun. And I can only imagine when all I will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Yet here in Revelation, as well in those other scriptures we just read, we do get an amazing glimpse of our future and our ultimate destiny. Because it is indeed the focal point of God's wonderful plan for His creation, His good creation. It has been His goal from the very beginning, and He will bring it to pass. So now we bring this message to a close by asking a couple of questions along with just a few of the possible answers. How did John want his letter to impact the first century Christians? 
And how should the book of Revelation impact us today? The answers are, of course, the same. First, it was to fill them as it should us with encouragement, hope for the future, in spite of the difficulties, sometimes immense difficulties of living within what sometimes appears as a hopeless and darkened world. That is critical and vital. It was for them and it is for us, absolutely. But there's much more than this. And this is key for us to understand because it leads us directly into our ultimate destiny. The second answer to our questions we find in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And it involves what we are to do with all this hope and encouragement that we have received from the Holy Spirit through all these scriptures we've been looking at. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. We see the Holy Spirit at work here, but who is the bride? Well, we know, don't we, that all of us together, the church, is indeed the bride. We are told this in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We see it also in this passage from Ephesians 5, starting in verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9, then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me, talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Here, John depicts New Jerusalem as the bride of Christ. Going back to Revelation 22:17, our response to that hope and encouragement, to all the blessings we have received as the bride of Christ, in a one-word answer, is to be saying, Come! Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And who are we be saying come to? To one another? I don't think so. But to those who are outside. There are many who are outside. We see that here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. But here is another key, an important point. In Revelation 21, 25, we see this. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. New Jerusalem's gates shall never be shut. Praise God. And so those who are outside for the moment, they are choosing not to come in. But we are to be inviters and welcomers for all to join us in the kingdom of God. To invite and welcome all into the very presence of our God that they too may come to experience His love and His forgiveness. 
One final picture of our ultimate future is in Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. I will now close with this. Our present destiny, our purpose in this life, is to be fulfilling our vocation. Our God-given vocation that for which we were created for and to be, the image of God out into this world. How do we do this? By being inviters and welcomers. And according to Revelation 22.2, to bring those healing leaves of the tree of life to those who have been damaged by sin. We are to rescue those who are lost to everyone who is outside the kingdom of God. In the simplest of words, we are to live as Jesus lived. To love as Jesus loved. And if we do these things, we are well on the way to fulfilling our vocation and to knowing our ultimate destiny. But that is for the next message. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for giving us a vision of the future for giving us a glorious present vocation, a glorious ultimate future where you will be all in all, where you will be with us in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. All we know is that we look forward to it. We ask that the Holy Spirit burn inside us to help us fulfill this present vocation, this present purpose of ours, to be inviters and welcomers out into this world for your glory. And we all say together in one voice, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.